Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we are continuing our conversation on Scott's book, Pastor Paul, Nurturing a Culture of Christiformity in the Church. We are continuing our look at seven examples that demonstrate how nurturing Christiformity was at the heart of the Pauline mission. And this episode, we're going to look at Paul's culture of witness. So Scott, what would you like to say about a culture of witness? Well, um, I think it's important to remember uh, pastors are, first of all, let's say leaders in churches, and our audience is a lot of pastors, so I often talk to them. Um, They are, first of all, a personal witness to the redemptive work of God in their lives and a witness to others of the gospel of redemption, a gospel about Jesus Christ. So witness uh, in the New Testament is both a witness to one's experience, what one saw, what one heard, um, what one experienced, and then it is a verbal declaration of that with one's life. Now, sometimes people people get to the point where they say a witness is is a life. It's not verbal. And that Mm -hmm. is fundamentally mistaken on the basis of the evidence of the ancient world. Martureo is the Greek word. Martus is the noun. Martureo, to martureo, to to witness, is to testify to something verbally. Mm -hmm of what yeah. the person has seen or heard or experienced. A martus becomes a martyr. And in that sense, they embody their verbal witness uh, in life, but it is never simply um, one's life. So in other words, one is a witness by one's life, but, but a person is not called a witness if they haven't verbally testified to the reality that that mm. life is supposed to embody. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful. Yeah. And you talk about in this chapter, you say there are three stories that every pastor is to nurture in a, chor- in a church in order to fo- foster Christiformity. And the three stories are the Bible's gospel story, the pastor's personal story, and the story of the congregation as part of the story of the church. And by that, I'm assuming you mean the whole church. So a local congregation has a story in the context of the whole church. Um, So talk about that a little bit. How does the pastor nurture all three of those stories? Well, uh, it goes back to the fact that, a, a uh, let's say, a pastor in a church is a witness. And as a witness, they are witness to a story. And the first witness that they are to, in fact, you could flip the first two either direction. They are a witness to the story about Jesus. So they they tell the story, the gospel story, as the story of Israel coming to completion in the story of Jesus. And that, that's something that they are a witness to. They, they, this is what they talk about. 
This is what they testified to. This is the story that is operative in their life. Then I think a pastor, a leader, a preacher, someone like you, has to uh, witness to their own life. They have to be able to tell their own story. Some pastors tell their own story too much. You know, and then it, it's sort of about them. John Barclay, uh, in a in a well-known article on the narrative dynamics in the New Testament, he has a chapter in that book in which he, he very helpfully says that Paul's story, I think it's a bit idealistic, but he, I think he's accurate, is that Paul's story was not a story about himself, but it was his story that witnessed to the story of Jesus. And yeah. that is fundamental. When the story becomes so much about ourselves that people are wanting to know us rather than wanting to know Jesus, then we have distorted the, the witness. So I think, first of all, they are a witness to the story of Jesus. And so secondly, then they tell the story of themselves. I think a pastor occasionally has to tell, let's say, their conversion story to remind people. And in our churches, I don't know what yours is like, Laura, but in, in most churches today, the average person attends only 50% of the time. This is really a change in attendance patterns. We probably have just about as many Americans going to church, but when you start measuring it by actual butts in a seat, the numbers have gone down. Uh, because people aren't going as often. But um, they have to tell their story occasionally, and they have to push uh, messages toward their own personal life so that people see that this is personal. I think it was Andy Stanley. I think this is, I don't know if you've heard this. I did not know this, but this is sort of his thing. His sermons have this order, me, we, God, me, we. Interesting. So you start, it has to begin with yourself. You, hmm. or maybe it's we and then me. I, I'm not sure of the order, but it has to begin. There's What you're preaching about has to impact your own life or it hmm. comes off as hollow. You know, Yeah. this is what I learned about prayer. Or this is something that in reading Eugene Peterson taught me all about what I'm actually called to do. Or when I was reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the Lord spoke to me like this. So this, this sort of personal testimony is important. Um, so I think pastors have to be a witness to the story of Jesus, the story of the gospel, story of the Bible. Then they have to have a personal story. But I also believe uh, pastors can do themselves a world of good. Preaching can help us all. When we learn to tell the story of our church in the context of the larger church. So I was just yesterday um, at uh, a church conference with Dave, Dave Ferguson's church, Christian Community Church in Naperville. And uh, one of the talks was about how big is your circle? Are we, do we see, mm -hmm. um, and, and I was uh, referring myself to Leslie Newbigin who said we have a problem of congregational competitiveness hmm. where hmm. congregations are competing in a sense for the same people, but trying to get them into their church. And then it's 
we're playing the game of what I call who's got, who's got the biggest church, who's got the best singers, who's got the best streaming services, who's got the most money, who's got, you know, who's got the biggest buildings, who's got the coolest, you know, this, that. All right. Um, and then a co congregational competitiveness forces us or, or has corrupts us from saying that what God is doing, he's, he's doing in our community, not just through us, but all other Christian church witnesses. And that instead yeah. of competing with other churches, we should plug in and and collaborate and cooperate with other churches. So, mm -hmm. you know, if the Methodists have a good uh, homeless ministry, we got to have one because that way we and if the Baptists have a good Sunday school, we got to have this. And if the Catholics are really good at at, uh, let's say, social justice in the community, we got to do that. And the next thing you know, we're all trying to self aggrandize rather than mm -hmm. communicate. But when we yeah. learn to tell the story of our church as a part of a larger church process over time, that Augustine is our ancestor, that Aquinas is our ancestor, Luther, Calvin, the Mennonites, they're our ancestors. Wesley's mm. our ancestor. This is a part of the larger church movement. And then, of course, we need to learn to connect to different ethnic groups in the United States because we've not done this yeah. well. So we begin to see ourselves as a part of a worldwide movement of God in the world mm. rather than yeah. uh, making our church, you know, the greatest church on planet Earth. And, it, and that, I think, <laughs> I think, is a huge, huge distortion. So yeah. that's that's the three stories that um, churches need to tell from the pulpit. Yeah, that's really, really good. I, I There's so many thoughts I have about that, but I'll keep us moving because otherwise no, we you, could get stuck you, there for a while. Let's hear what you had to say. Let's hear what you had to say. <laughs> well, I'm thinking about pastors telling their story, and I'm thinking about the way that Paul tells told his story. And I think you get into this later in the chapter, but just when Paul tells his story, he seems to tell it as a way of um, unburdening himself in some ways of some of the things that he used to count as his glory. Mm -hmm. So there's this, this, it seems like a very systematic way of sort of saying, these are things that I used to think were really important, my qualifications, but now I'm saying them in a way just to sort of tell you that I don't care about these things as much anymore. Um, and it's a way he he turns it on its head to give glory to Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and so there there are many times where where Paul um, is is talking about himself, but he's talking he talks about being the worst of sinners and one unnaturally born and those kinds of things. Like mm -hmm. it, as much as he's sort of pointing to qualifications qualifications. He's also um, taking pains to inform us that he he is well aware of his dependence on Christ. And yeah, I think yeah. um, there's something really important, even for pastors to think about as they tell their story, who's getting the glory from this story? And yeah. the answer always ought to be Christ. Yeah. Um, and that's what John Barclay's big point is, uh, is that when Paul tells a story, it, it just sort of morphs into the story of Christ rather than Christ's story morphing into his story. It's not what right. he has done for me, but in what he has done for me, look at who he is. Yeah. It's just a very subtle difference, but it makes all the difference in the world.
Africa. Yeah, I we really think heard, it does. You may know who Alice Matthews is. Do you know who she is? Mm-hmm. Oh, She's I 90, do. 93, you know. And she just told her story at our church a couple of weeks ago. Mm. And the the one theme that you come away with is she had, you know, she's written, what, 15, 20 books, maybe more. I don't know. She had some of them and she just threw them on the floor in front of her. And she said, the only thing that can explain this is God. Mm. This is all. Be- she says, I'm an introvert. All I want to do is be left alone in my study and to read and write. My husband is out there. He's the extrovert. <laughs> He's the pastor. I'm the introvert. Leave me alone. Mm. And she said, what happens is someone invites me to teach in a Sunday school class. It goes well. And a publisher is there. And they asked me to write a book. <laughs> and then I'm speaking all over the world. And she said, I never wanted to do this. Oh, so, that's so good. So, but it was it was so clear that she was, and in a sense, she wasn't doing some kind of artificial thing. I just want to give God mm-hmm. all the glory. It was very clearly that the only way to explain my life is that God did something to me and through me that I never would have done. So yeah, it was really that's good. so good. It was good. That's yeah. so good. She's she's so good. Um, I'm thinking too about the telling the congregation story, and I think that this is something we really need to um, revive in some ways um, as pastors talking about the the connection point between our church to the entire church, the global church, the church throughout time and history. Um, reviving that sense that our local church is one expression, one mm-hmm. form of local expression of God's church mm-hmm. and to build an imagination in people um, for what God is doing in all kinds of places and has been doing throughout time. Um, because I, I, we need to be reminded that there's something bigger than us that we're a part of. And I think um, God is a God that deals with groups of people. Um, God loves individuals, but God also addresses communities of people. Uh, God highly values community and And so it's good for us to remember that, that we have a community identity, even in our local congregation, but also that we are a part of something bigger, a bigger Christian community in our town, in our neighborhood, you know, Mm -hmm. and out from there that um, we just need to keep that sense of being a community of Christ followers um, and that that as a group, we're a witness. And so yes, then I yes. think you could dig into what kind of witness do we have? Is that the yeah. witness that we want to have? You know, yeah, that's good. That's good. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. And then we get into the question of whether or not Paul was a convert. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, this is uh, this is an interesting question. I don't know how many people that are listening to us even know about this debate. But for mm-hmm. a long time, well, for a decade, there was quite a debate among Pauline scholars whether the road, the uh, Damascus Road experience of Paul was a conversion or whether it was a call. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of posed these over against one another. And here was the problem. To say Paul was a convert was was for many people to say that he had changed religions. And this got baked into the definition of of whether Paul was a convert. Did he change his religions? The question is, is, is what Paul believed a form of, let's say, Judaism 
is it is it the biblical faith? If it's the biblical faith that he found in Judaism and then uh, encounters the Messiah of the biblical faith that is expected in Judaism, then he hasn't changed religions at all. He's just mm. got a, a, let's say, a fullness, um, yeah. a fulfillment of that. So then Paul's not a convert. So then what is the road to Damascus? It's a call of this Jewish apostle, a Jewish person, to take this message, let's say, of Judaism to the Gentile world. Now, that was that's sort of one explanation of it. And I, I don't agree with this. I think, I think the definition that a convert is someone who has changed religions that has been baked into this into this debate is a categorical mistake hmm. that in fact there are different kinds of converts some people uh convert within a group you know let's say you grow mm -hmm. up covenant you grow up baptist you grow up anglican and you're just kind of wandering around and at 28 uh, you wake up one morning and have intense scrutiny of yourself and you say i'm going to make this faith my own you haven't really converted in in a sense of changing religion it's an intensification so how how do we recognize when a person is a convert um because a conversion in a sense uh this is an amazing statement by lewis rambo no i don't think it's by rambo i can't remember the guy's name uh, he wrote a book on stages of faith. Fowler, Fowler said, a, a conversion is whatever a group says it is. <laughs> well, that is an interesting question. And and you say to that, well, okay. Well, that's true, though. I grew up in a Baptist church, and a true conversion was you had to go forward and get baptized. You weren't converted until you were willing to do. There were some of these little secret people who maybe were so introverted, they just were never going to go forward. Um, they wanted to do it privately. I remember when I was in college, a woman who was not acceptable at our church, or accepted at the church in a full way, because she'd been baptized as a baby, was, but wasn't baptized as an adult. And she was not going to get rebaptized. So she mm. couldn't serve on any committee. She couldn't really participate oh. much in the church. Um, so, it, so group definition is important. But in my own study of this, and I have a book called Turning to Jesus on this topic, um, I became convinced that the best way to detect a conversion is a changed autobiography. It is not so much what other people think, although the group does matter. It is when you begin to tell a first person's narrative in which there was a before and an after. And then we ask the question, not did Paul change religions, and not simply did Paul get a call, because he certainly did. The question is, does Paul have a story in which he says a sort of before and after? Well, he does. Yeah. So a, a conversion in that sense is a change in a person's identity. Hmm. Is that before I was this person, and now I'm this person. 
And that, I think, is unquestionable and undeniable in the Apostle Paul's own narrative. Is You yeah. can read Acts 9, which is Luke's story. You can read Acts 22 and Acts 26, which are Paul's own stories. And you can read Galatians chapter 1, or you can read Philippians 3, or you can read... Um, uh, where's where, where's the other one I'm going to in Paul's own? I did I say, mention Galatians one, um, mm -hmm. Galatians Galatians two fifteen to twenty one. You can go to any of those stories and you can see there's this before and after. He has changed his personal narrative. Once mm -hmm. I was like this, but now I'm like that. That is the sign of a convert, and Paul was a convert. So that's my. So is it fair to say that for Paul, it was a change in allegiance? Because I think you could make the case that Paul was allegiant to God. He was following his understanding of the Torah. And then he came to see that located in the person of Christ. He saw that fulfillment in the person of Christ. So it's not so much as a total... Um, change in an allegiance as much as a fuller understanding of where his allegiances ought to lie. That as being allegiant to God meant being allegiant to Jesus as his Lord. I totally agree with that. I think that, that his allegiance shifted from, let's say, a Torah-shaped uh, life before God to a Jesus-shaped life before God. So there's a change of allegiance, and Jesus becomes his Lord, but it is, it is clearly um, an autobiographical shift. Formerly, yeah. I hated the church. I opposed it. I persecuted it. I chased these people to death. I got letters so I could imprison them. And uh, now uh, I remember when I was in high school, a man who helped me learn evangelism, his name was Ray, said he said um you can tell what the grace of god is with paul because he took his biggest enemy and made him his best apostle and that's the shift in paul's life he he i i think paul would say he didn't change his his he didn't change gods it's the god of israel but the god of israel as revealed in jesus is a real shift because you can find this with many Jews at the time of Paul who did not like what Paul was preaching. They opposed him. And Beverly Gaventa in her commentary on Acts makes it quite clear that they, the Paul, Luke at least, describes these people as opposing God. Not just the mission, not just the gospel, not Paul, Silas, Barnabas, John Mark. They are opposing what God is doing in the world. So yeah. Paul yeah. saw it that way. Yeah. That's so fascinating. Um, you talk about how our stories are God's stories, and we find our story only we, when we lose it in God's story in Christ. And so I think that's sort of what you see happening in the life of Paul, that he loses his story in God's story in Christ, that I, I always think of Paul as a rather intense and stubborn person, just the way he's portrayed and the way he talks about himself. So it's like the, the, the intensity he had formerly for persecuting the church. Now that same intensity has been transferred 
effort into promoting Christ and building the church um, by taking his mission to the Gentiles. So it's the same sort of intensity. It's just redirected yeah. um, because his his story has been lost in God's story in Christ. So talk about that a little bit, about where our stories get located. Yeah, um, you use the word intense. I use the word zeal. Paul uses the word zeal. I was zealous you know, for the traditions of my fathers. And that and that zeal does not seem to go away. I mean, everywhere mm. he went, he got in trouble. Uh, <laughs> or he caused a disturbance. You know, it's it's in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, Thessaloniki to uh, Philippi to probably Athens to Corinth. Everywhere he goes, he's he's creating disturbances. So, um, but Paul, Paul's story gets lost. He gets absorbed with what God is doing in the world. And he has a capacity as a prophet, as an apostle, to discern quicker than most and more penetrating than most what God is doing in the world. And mm -hmm. he sees what Jesus is doing in this mission as the work of God in the world to bring the world to account. So he can sing or, or read or write in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, this hymn that it's just unbelievable. He thinks the whole world is being reconciled mm. to God in Christ. Yeah. And the church is his body. And here's this guy, you know, I, I think about this quite a bit. Maybe I think about this too much. Paul is a part of a pretty small group. I mean, this is not um, the number of Democrats or the number of Republicans in the United States. This is like the number of people who follow um, Krishna in <laughs> yeah. your local town. I mean, there aren't very mm -hmm. many. And yeah. Paul's, I mean, uh, Tom Wright makes this, this is probably the first time I saw this. I'd never thought about the question 25 years ago. I think I heard Tom say there were probably about 150 to 200 Christians in Rome in the first century. Wow. Well, that sure blows away the idea of how many Christians. And you think this little letter, this letter was written to that that number of people, and, and now it's this influential. And the, mm. the churches are small in Ephesus, and that's the center of of his orbit. So, but Paul sees these little groups as the future of the world for God. Yeah. And that they, the, the script is going to be flipped and that those who are being oppressed and persecuted and opposed are going to become the rulers in the kingdom of God. The, you know, John, the Apostle John, or whoever wrote the book of Revelation, this is the same thing. Think about these, these little churches, and he thinks Rome's going down. They're going to go up in flames, and the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem, is going to be on top. It's going to be a glorious and city, and nations are going to flood to it. The gates are going to be open. It's going to be safe. You know, the healing of the nations, all this stuff. Um, is the eschatology of these Christians. Hmm. And Paul was right there apart. He thought what he was doing 
was what God was doing in the world. And he was seeing it in the powers, the miracles, the conversions. He was seeing the yeah. work of God uh, displayed. Mm. So That's so good. And and that goes back to that idea of the witness of the local church. What is the what is the witness of the local church? And the idea sometimes I think we do have that sense of what can one Christian do or what can one small group of believers do? And I think Paul's answer is a lot if they are faithful. Yeah. Um, and a lot that is invisible. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, <clears throat> there's a little bit of um humiliation going on with the church today a needed humility is that the church has bragged and pontificated about what everybody should do and right now we're a little bit hesitant to say that what's going on in our church is what god is doing in the world for mm. the whole world please join us that we're a little bit hesitant to say today but paul was not one bit hesitant and he was persecuted more. He was opposed more. Um, so I think we can learn from Paul as a witness yeah. in that way. That's so good. So I want to ask a question. I'm not entirely sure how to frame it, but one of the things that comes across very clearly in Paul is this idea of suffering. And um, you write, when we tell our story, the eye of the story is a crucified eye, a crucified ego, and that is the rule of what it means to be a Christian. So I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about um, this idea of the crucified ego and the role of suffering um, in creating our, our story of having this witness. Yes, it begins with Jesus. When Jesus in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10 tells the disciples for three different reasons, they don't seem to be getting to this very, very clearly, that he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to die. He's going to be put to death, but he's going to be raised. And then he connects this immediately with the call to discipleship. Basically, he says, I am a cruciform Lord, and you are called to become cruciform disciples. Mm. If my life ends in death on the cross, your life might be there too. I like to call this Christoformity because Jesus called his disciples not only to be conformed to the cross because he was going to die, but also to be conformed to the resurrection because he was going to be raised. Yeah. So now it's it's cruciformity, anastasiformity, which doesn't exist. Uh, but so altogether, we want to be formed into the image of Christ to follow in his wake. So Jesus starts this. The Apostle Paul is converted on the road to Damascus, and everything seems so hunky-dory, though he realizes that he was so opposed to these people, he was putting them to death. And he had to, it had to take him two hours to realize, if I join this group, they may kill me. The people <laughs> who were like me are going to become, and I'm going to become like them. So Paul yeah. realized this. And one of the things that you realize is the Apostle Paul in every city that he preached the gospel, experienced opposition, and some of it quite severe. 
In fact, I, I often say, if you just read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I think it's verses 23 to 25, and just look at what happened to this guy's body, how many times he was beaten. Now, he didn't go to the yeah. hospital and get treated right. with medicine and get treated with Band-Aids and have antibacterial and shots. This stuff just festered and and grew scabs and scars and I'm sure he had some broken fingers and he probably had uh, scars on his face. You know, I remember it always reminds me, I used to go to a barber shop when I had hair and I would, uh, they had this sign on this about a dog that had three legs and one eye and <laughs> one ear and answers to the name lucky. You know? and, <laughs> and I thought this is, this is sort of like the apostle Paul mm, is that yeah. this guy was beaten up. And so when Paul says in Galatians, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, the marks of Christ, he's talking about physical punishments. And this is early in his career. By the time he dies, I mean, I think his body was a living witness to persecution. Hmm. So Paul says at times, but I, I think one of the great ones is Colossians 1, 24 to 25, I make up in my body what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. So Paul saw the pastoral struggle and opposition and persecution as an opportunity to participate in the suffering of Christ. And that mm -hmm. became a witness in his body and in his life to the very essence of the gospel itself, the story of Jesus who lived and was persecuted unjustly killed and raised uh that's the story of paul that's i mean that's mm. the story of jesus and it becomes the story of paul so i think i answered your question yeah that's really good i several years ago when i was um sort of discerning a pastoral call in my own life i sat down like in a weekend and read through all the pastoral epistles because I was trying to figure out what is this job? What, you know, Paul's mm -hmm. talking to all of his protégés. He's telling them about the role. This maybe will help me learn about what this looks like. And the thing that came across loud and clear through that, just brief reading through those books was how often Paul equates leadership with suffering. Mm. I remember that coming through loud and clear and thinking, what am I getting myself into? And it was Paul encouraging others to lead in the church, but how often he talks about leadership as suffering um, or connects it to just suffering. And I, I thought, that is really interesting. And I wonder how many pastors know that, yeah. you know, that they're being called to a work that includes suffering. And, and I was just talking about this with a fellow pastor this week about, you know, they're they're just in the daily work of pastoring. There will be moments where you are rejected and moments where you are betrayed by the people you're called to serve. And that is, that can be painful. But I think Paul would say, what did you expect? Like this is, yeah, this yeah, is the yeah. job. <laughs> you know, he also connects suffering to joy. Mm. So yes, I, I totally agree with you. And, you know, and he says on top of this, I have all the anxiety for the churches, but, you know, a pastor, leaders in churches, people on mission could read 2 Corinthians 11 once or twice a year 
mm. and just say, is this my experience? I, you know, I, I've been shipwrecked this many times. I've been beaten this many times. <laughs> I've, I've gone without food. I've, I've had no place to stay. I've been you know, all these things over and over. This was Paul's story is that he, he experienced a lot of opposition and suffering. But I think in during this pandemic, Laura, I think pastors have experienced the cross of Christ mm -hmm. in ways that they may not even know they're experiencing the cross. It has been painful. People have been angry. People who think in, they believe in masks and other people who don't believe in masks. Mm. Uh, people who um, who don't believe in streaming and people who believe in streaming. And, you know, the, the only thing I disagreed with is I thought we should be able to have Internet communion or Eucharist. And I lost it. I, I had this conversation with some other canon theologians and leaders in the, well, in the Anglican group that I'm in, and they did not agree with this at all. And, you know, I thought, okay, so I lost that. But pastors are in the middle of people. Yeah. And they are yeah. called to be peacemakers in a day when peace is very difficult to find. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how much of this you've already experienced, but the stories that I'm hearing is this has been out of this world difficult for mm, pastors. Mm, and so yeah. I would just say that they are, they are experiencing the Christoformity of Jesus and of Paul in suffering for the sake of the gospel as they struggle with people to help them grow into being like Christ. And that's, this is difficult time for that, but it's it's so much a part of life for the pastor right now. Mm, mm, that's good. And I think that idea of connecting it to joy, because I think Paul would say all of that brought him closer into dependence on Christ, which he considered yeah. a joy, yeah, which is great. You know, he's not a nut, you know, going, I can't <laughs> wait to get persecuted. But he clearly <laughs> does connect persecution and joy. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Well, thank you. This has been a great conversation. Today, we talked about the culture of witness. And next time on Kingdom Roots, we'll talk about the culture of world subversion, which I can't wait to talk about. Uh, we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 